Today then we turn in our Bibles to Hebrews and chapter 2, read the verses 14 to 18, which we read this morning. And we're thinking in these verses of the incarnation, the birth, the coming of the Son of God from heaven to this earth. Now, William and Kate, in their visit to Boston, have sought to enter into, embrace, experience, and learn the local culture. They have met with local councillors dealing with rising water levels. They have visited Harvard University to learn of their child development project. They've attended the local museum with with the late President Kennedy's daughter and, of course, been to a a basketball match to cheer on the Boston Celtics. They've not secluded themselves in a five-star hotel or restricted themselves to visiting royal palaces, but they have entered into the life of the city. They have made an effort to learn the culture and to respect the customs of Boston. And today, we're considering the incarnation of Jesus, the event in which Jesus, the Son of God, came into our culture and embraced our nature. The paragraph 14 to 18 is found within the overall section about Jesus being superior to angels. Angels are mentioned in it in the 16th verse. We have noticed in chapter 1 that Jesus is superior to the angels as the Son of God, as the sovereign King, as seated at God's right hand. He is called Son of God. The angels are never called God's Son. Jesus is sovereign over all, but angels are like wind and lightning made and used by God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, but angels are sent out as messengers into the church and state as servants of God. And so the writer has argued we should listen carefully to the message of Jesus, who is above angels, to that message of so great salvation. And then in chapter 2, the writer has continued his argument for the superiority of Jesus to the angels by adding one further contrast between the angels and Jesus. The contrast is that Jesus, as perfect man, is crowned with glory and honor. He is Lord today of all the earth, exalted to that position which God had destined for Adam, Eve, and all humanity, as Psalm 8, which the writer quotes, indicates. Jesus experiences now the glory and the honor of dominion over all the earth. And we learned last Sabbath evening the incredible insight into the grace of God that he is bringing all his people to share in that exalted glory of Jesus. Verse 9, he is bringing many sons to the glory of Psalm 8, which was destined for Adam and Eve and humanity, but sin has ruined it. God in redemption is restoring it to his people. The only way for that restoration the writer has hinted at is by Jesus tasting death for everyone. 
And now he comes to focus in on that point of bringing the sons and daughters to glory, the means of doing that. He enlarges it in this paragraph 14 to 18. It was a critical point to address for the original readers. They struggled with the idea of a despised and rejected Messiah. The promised Savior of God, they thought, should be all-powerful, almighty, pushing all his foes before him. The cross of Jesus was a stumbling block not only for the Jews, but also for the readers who professed faith in Christ. Their faith was being weakened. Questions were emerging in their minds. How could they follow a suffering Messiah? And so it was important for this writer to pause at that point, to reflect on it and to explain to them that the suffering of Jesus brings incredible good. This is no barrier to his exalted glory, but the reason for his exalted glory, the reward for his dominion over all the earth. It's no mistake that Jesus has suffered rather This is part of God's incredible plan in bringing us unto glory. Now in this paragraph 14 to 18, the writer describes the incarnation of Jesus which leads on to his death in three different ways and connects that incarnation to our lives and our experience. Richard Brooks describes this paragraph as one of the most precious passages in Hebrews. And so it is. Firstly, verses 14 and 15, Jesus became human to deliver us from our fears. Jesus became human to deliver us from our fears. One reason for the incarnation of Jesus in verse 15 is to deliver us from the fear of dying. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is the fear of meeting God after our death as stated in chapter 9 verse 25 is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And all people, I would argue, innately fear What comes after death? There's an innate sense within all of us, believer and unbeliever, of a judgment to come after death. And despite what people say or seem deep down, we all naturally fear death because of what comes after it. And Jesus became human to deliver us from that fear. The first description of the incarnation of Jesus is given in verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Flesh and blood is our skin, fat, organs, and the blood pumped through them. It's the corporal aspect, corporal aspect of our humanity. We're more than this. 
We also have immortal souls, but the part of us is put for the whole of us here. It doesn't mean Jesus didn't have a soul or didn't have two wills. Rather, it is focusing on the part of a human that can die. Flesh and blood, Richard Brooks says, is the great leveler. It is what we all have in common. And this is the idea in the text. The children share in flesh and blood. All humans reaching back to Adam are flesh and blood. And all believers are flesh and blood. Rich and poor. Male and female. Wise and foolish. Unbelievers and believers. So Jesus in becoming human partook of flesh and blood. He took hold of these two things in his incarnation. He had bones, skin, internal organs, arteries, veins. He really and truly became human. And there's three points about this particular description about Jesus in verses 14 and 15. I know there's some medical doctors or trainee doctors here, but, but this description contains three dimensions to Jesus' incarnation. One is the fullness of the incarnation of Jesus. The terms likewise and same in verse 14 make this point. He really became truly human. All humans share in flesh and blood. So did Jesus. He took the very same nature. He didn't become half man. An idea that we can get when we use the phrase God-man. But Jesus is fully man and fully God in one person. In the Old Testament, Jesus, as the angel of the Lord, assumed a temporary human form to appear to Abraham and to Jacob and to others. But in the womb of Mary, by the power of the Spirit, Jesus partook of our human nature fully and permanently. A second point made in this description is the tense used for partook. It's in the aorist tense, meaning a once for all event, a specific moment in time. Nine months before he was born in Bethlehem, his deity was joined to his humanity in the womb of Mary by the power of the Spirit. He partook at a particular moment in time of flesh and blood. A third point is the order of this description of humanity. The order in Greek is blood and flesh. The words are probably reversed in our translation to be in line with other passages which mention flesh and blood. However, blood comes first, no doubt emphasizing that Jesus became human to die and atone for our sins. And that is what the verse goes on to state. Why did he become truly human? Why did he partake of flesh and blood which is common to us all? And in this instance, the reason is that he could act in our place and die in our place and thereby, verse 15, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
You may be sitting there and asking, how does all this fit together? Incarnation, death, Satan, fear, how do all of those things work together? Well, I think it's like this. Satan has the power of death in the sense that he tempted our first parents to sin and continues to tempt us to sin. It is God who inflicted and inflicts the punishment of spiritual, physical and eternal death on humanity for sin. As the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. But it was Satan who tempted Eve and tempts us to sin. In that sense, he has the power of death. It doesn't mean that Satan determines the end of our lives. It's God who determines that time. But it was his temptation that brought sin into the human race and thereby has brought death on us all. Death, the chosen punishment of God for our sin. But in the death of Jesus, by him shedding his blood, Jesus takes the punishment for our sins so that we do not need to fear meeting God at death. Thereby he destroys the stranglehold of fear of meeting God, which Satan had brought on us by our sin. My mother-in-law had experienced this deliverance from the fear of death, but she was realistic. During her suffering from cancer in her 60s and 50s and her many treatments, she often said to us, I'm not afraid of death but I'm afraid of dying. And what she meant in her humble and godly manner was that the physical pain she anticipated and the emotional trauma involved in dying, that unknown road troubled her. The sting of death was gone. The fear of standing before Almighty God was not there for her. She was delivered from the fear of death. But she recognized dying is a challenging experience. And the grief and loneliness experienced by her loved ones after her death concerned her. Not afraid of death, but afraid of dying. Are you afraid of death? If not yet a Christian, you absolutely should be. You remember the Roman governor Felix trembled as Paul reasoned with him about death and the judgment to come. The knees of King Darius shook as he saw the writing on the wall announcing his death and judgment. But if we are a Christian, do we fear death? If we do, is it because we have a lack of understanding or belief in what Jesus has done for us on the cross? 2.14, through death, he has destroyed the one who has the power of death. 
Listen to the pastoral words of our reformers on this point. Martin Luther says, He who fears death or is not willing to die is not sufficiently Christian. As yet such people, he says, lack faith in the resurrection and love this life more than the life to come. John Calvin speaks in a similar way. He says, although we must still meet death, let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying when we have Christ going before us. If anyone cannot set his mind at rest by disregarding death, that man should know that he has not gone far enough in the faith of Christ. Jesus became human to deliver us from our fear. Secondly, Jesus became human to deliver us from our sins. Verses 16 and 17. The word used for the incarnation of Jesus in verse 16 is helps. This word means to lay hold of and thereby to help. Spick explains it as lay hold of and appropriate. That is to say, assume human nature and make it his own. The only way Jesus could really effectively and eternally help us was by assuming, laying hold of our nature. The word is used elsewhere and helps us to grasp the meaning of it here in verse 16. Matthew 14, verse 31, Peter, outside of the boat, walking on the water, beginning to sink, we read, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. Acts 16, 19, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. Thus, the idea is that Jesus firmly violently, powerfully grabs our humanity in his incarnation like we would grab the hand of a sinking person and not let go until we had helped them. So the Son of God lays hold of our nature to help us in our sin. And how does he help us? The text says it is helping us in things pertaining to God. What things pertaining to God, we might ask, and in what way does he help us in relation to those things? It's in our relationship with God, our guilt before him, because of his anger towards us. The text indicates Jesus helps us by making propitiation for our sins. That is, he appeases the wrath of almighty, holy God against us by taking that wrath on himself. The book of Hebrews, drawing on the Old Testament, emphasizes the wrath of God against sin and sinners. 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. Jesus helps us. Jesus takes hold of our humanity and in his death 
in our place as perfect man and divine God takes the punishment of God that we deserve. The background is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went forward on behalf of the nation and offered that sacrifice to appease the wrath of a holy God. Jesus, our high priest, has taken our flesh and blood, laid hold of our humanity, and in our place and room and stead, has given himself, as we're remembering today, to propitiate, to appease, to turn away the wrath of God against us. Matt Hancock wants forgiveness from the nation, doesn't he, for his trespasses. He knows the nation is angry with him and for many things that he has done. He's gone to the jungle, published a book, done interviews. He wants us to put away our wrath against him. Lady Mono is selling her house in London for 20 million in Belgravia. In recent days, it's been pelted with eggs because people are angry that she made so much money selling PPE during COVID times. God's wrath is just, but it's appeased in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. In verse 16 and 17, Jesus is described as faithful. It means he's reliable and can be relied on. He was faithful in doing all that God sent him to do. Faithful to the mission given him by God. He became man. He lived perfectly. He gave his life a ransom for all. Now the faithful one can be trusted and should be trusted by us. As we come to communion, we come not trusting in ourselves in our works, in our efforts, in our position in society, in our achievements, but only in the one who was faithful to God. We put our faith in him. Jesus became human to deliver us from our fears, to deliver us from our sins, and thirdly, to help us in our temptations, verse 18. In his incarnation, in his life and death, he suffered when tempted. His true humanity is evidenced in this phrase. He suffered in his temptations. Now, Professor Donnelly, in his two lectures, excellent lectures on the temptation of Jesus, announces at the start that he was not getting into the psychological dimension of Jesus' temptation, how the sinless one could really be tempted. He says he was incapable of such study and doubts if any man was capable. But we're forced to consider that dimension here, aren't we? Jesus, as incarnate one suffered being tempted. We're meant somehow to understand this to some degree. Perhaps you think that because Jesus never sinned, never yielded to temptation, that he therefore does not understand our temptations. 
Philip Hughes replies to that. He says, it is a fallacy to think that because Christ never gave in to temptation, he knew less about it. And he is right. And he explains why that is the case, he says. His conquest of temptation means that he knows more. He knows the full force of temptation. Jesus does know more about the strength of temptation. The suffering and temptation that comes than we do. Sympathy, one writer says, with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. What is the help Jesus gives us In our temptations then, Richard Brooks suggests a sympathizing heart, a listening ear, and surely that is included in this, but there is more here. Forgiveness for our past sins. The annulment of past defeats when we have yielded to temptation. His atoning death secures forgiveness for us and thereby helps our guilty conscience. He helps us who suffer in temptation. And secondly, he gives us power to fight and overcome temptation in the present. He provides grace for us in our daily trials and our temptation to lose our temper with our children, to speak proudly to our neighbor, to pilfer goods at work to lust after another, to lie, to covet, to boast, to belittle. Jesus helps us in our temptation. And these two ideas of help, atonement and grace are found in a prayer in Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. We thought before of the example of a dam. When the pressure on the dam is most powerful is not when the dam breaks, but when the dam holds. So Jesus has experienced far more of the power of temptation than you and I. And is able to help us. When we are tempted. There's a real pastoral point here, isn't there? A real application into our lives as we live together and seek to enter into one another's joys and sorrows. That we don't have to have experienced something in every detail in order to be able to help someone. Jesus helps us in our temptation and even in our failure even though he only knows the temptation, but not the failure. Sometimes we don't even know half of the experience that someone else has gone through. Who among us is tempted to gamble? Probably no one. 
Yet we can enter the experience of someone addicted to gambling in our sanctified imagination and heart. We can try to put ourselves in the gambler's shoes. Likewise, with a great and sore bereavement, a court case for something that the person never did, the loss of a business, domestic violence, wayward children or grandchildren, the loss of hearing, sight, mobility, a marriage breakup. Some of us will never be in those positions, but we don't have to have experienced them to be able to show sympathy and help those who are experiencing them. Jesus, whom we remember today and rejoice in, became human to deliver us from our fear, to deliver us from our sin, to help us in our temptations. And two incredible lessons abide with us as we leave this paragraph. One is that in the church, God calls us to humble service. He sent his son in human form, taking flesh and blood to be tempted into a state of humiliation, as the theologians call it, an experience very different from that which he had before he came in heaven. And what he has now, in any congregation there are humble jobs to be done and Jesus calls us to such lowly service he said I came not to be served but to serve and this is disciples we are called to that and the second lesson that we leave with is that good comes from suffering in the life of God's people it is in the death of Jesus that Satan is destroyed and that sin is atoned for. In the death of Jesus, it's from his deep and dark sufferings such good comes. From his physical shame, from his societal forsakenness, from his religious ridicule, from his awful agony. God brings reward to him and blessing to us from the very depths of his sufferings. Let us, in these moments, lift up our suffering to God and ask him to bless it to us and to others. The longer I am here in Newton Ards, the more I am learning about suffering in every family that has been or is being experienced. This paragraph teaches us to trust God that he will bring good to us and good to others even from our pain.